know, when walking out the door, look at the mirror and take one thing off, you know, one accessory that you're worth. And that's what I often tell their writers to do, um, to look at your piece again and take off another accessory. Ron McCullum is a successful science writer, and not just because he knows his subjects. He also knows how to convey information succinctly. On this episode of the Journalism Salute, Rod talks about that, his beat, and much more. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Rod McCullum. Rod is a freelance science and technology writer who has been published in many different places, including but not limited to Scientific American, Time Magazine, and The Atlantic. He previously worked for ABC News and was a Knight Institute Research Fellow at MIT. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. My first question is the same as it is for every yes that we have. Can you tell us the story of your journalism path? Yeah, interesting question because I'm asked this many times, and each time I'm asked, I realize um, I have the same core answer, but I expand on it depending upon the audience. So years and years ago, I wanted to be, you know, everyone grows up wanting to be something. And I grew up in the 70s. So um, space travel, of course, was a big thing then. You know? And I was really interested in space, um, not necessarily in terms of just the vastness, but the logistics. You know? How did they get there? You know, how do you, and, and how they send photos, you know, back from the moon. I was really interested in things like that. And also um, medical technology, like um, uh, x-rays and things like that. So I went to university. I'm, I'm sorry. And also at the same time, I also, I love for writing as well. So when I was a kid, um, when I was young, young, I would write, write stories, so, you know, that no one really was going to read besides a teacher, maybe just about, um, astronauts or, you know, engineers working on a rocket plane or something, you know, a rocket or something like that. Or doctors discovering some new virus. So I had these two loves of science, you know, and also of writing. So when I went to university, um, the science didn't work out well for me. And I wanted to go to, uh, medical school or grad school to be a scientist or, or obviously medical school to be a physician. Um, but I still had this, um, love of science and appreciation for science. So, I went into more of my other love, which was writing. Um, and at that time, which would be like the early 1990s, the HIV-AIDS crisis was, um, you know, full force. And um, I wrote a piece for a magazine on a major demonstration here in Chicago against a pharmaceutical, against what they were charging for their um, um, for the HIV drug. And I realized at that time that I had a gift for explaining science to non-scientists. Yeah. So um, it just sort of took off from there. I worked um, for a magazine for two. I worked on LA, at the LA Times briefly and uh, went into television. I was working at NBC and ABC. I'm here in Chicago and in New York. And um, But my love was always writing, was always print. So um, I got back into um, writing for print probably like the late 2000s or so. And mostly went to help and then, of course, all into science and technology. And that's where we are today. I'd be remiss not to ask you about your TV career, uh, your TV production career. Were right. there any skills that you learned in that field that are still applicable for you today? Um, that's actually a very good question as well. I'm glad you asked that because I think the, the short answer is yes. 
Um, I feel that I've been able to, I was able to be successful in both because I was able to compartmentalize and, um, but also bring skills into each situation, sort of like um, code switching or speaking multiple languages. Um, what I learned and I appreciate the most in television, in television news, was the video in terms of telling the story. Yeah? So one thing that I learned, what I value when I returned to writing for print and of course in digital later, was illustrating the story by words. You know, and of course in television it's with photos and videos, and in print and in digital, of course we do it with words. So bringing up the best pieces of the story early. Yeah? So that really works as well as science. Also personal narratives as well. Um, because those are really strong in television. And I learned the importance of those when I returned to uh, writing for print and also going into digital. It's the, the power of, uh, of, of personal human stories. Yep, and you certainly see those on uh, television. Uh, yes. plenty. On your Contently page, you have about 50 examples of your work posted. And what I thought was cool was they are listed under 20-something categories. So you cover, mm. you really run the gamut <laughs> as far as science goes. And just yeah. to give you a couple of examples of the yeah. kinds of stories that you do. How bullying affects the brain. Literally, the brain changes. Anxiety becomes more likely. You did stories, yeah. as you mentioned, on HIV and HIV vaccines. Your fingerprints can show if you've done drugs. That was a fascinating right. story done by analyzing the sweat on yes. your finger, on your fingertips. And yes. then racial disparities in the pandemic, specifically related to artificial intelligence algorithms on multiple fronts, including right. a diagnosing algorithm being able to identify health issues on dark skin. All right. That's right. a lot of different things there. How it, do you come is. up with your story ideas? It is. It is. And it, thank you. Thank you for catching that. Um, it's sort of interesting, like in a, what, two sentences, I mean, basically over the 30 seconds, you sort of ran down to me. Um, my core areas, my core focus areas yep. are artificial, are artificial intelligence, uh, biometrics, brain and cognitive sciences, um, infectious disease uh, slash epidemiology, and the science of crime, trauma, and violence. And if I can find a story that can combine all of those, or, or, or many of those together, I think it's a good day. And I think if you look back over the stories that you just read, or the stories that you just cited, you see that they all basically fall within those frameworks. It might seem very broad, um, but I just try to, um, I try to dig deep um, in a limited or in a limited um, subject area. I, I, if you notice, I don't go into things as a space or biology, climate, environment. And a lot of those I'm just not really strong at. So I feel why should at this point, you know, I would rather deepen, you know, my understanding and report stronger as opposed to taking on more core areas, if that makes any sense. Sure, uh, mm -hmm. it does. Um, so how does the story idea come about for you? How does the story idea come about? Right, so thank you, I forgot to um, explain that. Basically, it's curiosity. And sometimes I might be walking down the street and see something, um, or sometimes it might be on YouTube and something might pop up. Isn't this interesting? For instance, you mentioned a story about fingerprint analysis just in terms of drug use. And I was actually on YouTube one day, and um, I don't know, I was just in a YouTube rabbit hole, you know, and I saw a clip about, um, I saw a YouTube um, clip on, it's from a local, it was, it was, it was from one of the um, news channels in, in Great, Great Britain. There's a short clip, um, just of their news, I guess someone was just recording the news, but the reader, we call them anchors here, um, was saying that they would have some, they had some interesting news about a new scientific discovery um, around 
drug use and fingerprints. So, I, you know, I, I, there was nothing more in broadcast, but that sort of intrigued me. So I just made a note of it and I did some research. I read just went online for a little bit and realized that there were two um, research teams based in Great Britain that are um, conducting this research on fingerprint drug analysis. And, and the way I like to look at news or science news is not necessarily what's happening today, but what could be happening five years from now or 10 years from now. So um, I think, for instance, there's, I, there could be a good discussion around the viability of drug testing via fingerprints, of course, because it could be done to people um, without their knowledge. You know? And that became, um, you know, that became one of the issues as well in my reporting. So I like to look for stories that are underreported, especially those that can have, have an impact on a wide audience or and or stories that will, um, science and technology stories that will impact on marginalized communities. One of those that you wrote about uh, recently, can you take us through it from idea to completion? Mm-hmm. How wearable artificial intelligence could help you recover from COVID? Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's interesting you would cite that story. Sure. It's interesting you would cite that story because I'm pitching um, another piece on global technology to MIT, to MIT Technology Review. And I was working actually on that piece today. So that story also that story came a different way. And another way that I also uh, often find science news or technology news articles are just on e- subscribing to different email lists. And sometimes I'll subscribe to email lists of different aggregator sites. You've probably seen those, yeah? Mm-hmm. So there's some aggregator, news aggregator sites, science news aggregator sites that I um, email, that I subscribe to because they constantly have PR, you know, um, um, PR releases from coming out from different companies, different research companies or different universities. So... Uh, I got an email one day about um, the possibility of using wearable technology um, to um, to treat COVID, long-term COVID patients. This sounds interesting. So um, I looked at the research, I looked at the PR um, news release, and it was about a product, you know, coming from a company. There's this company that was based in the Chicago area and that had done a lot of work apparently and other wearable technologies and other technologies around health. And they had a pilot program going on in Chicago, where I'm based actually, and they had some good success to it. So I looked it up, I looked at that program, I looked up more in the company, I looked up more on um, the field of wearable technologies in COVID, and learned that there's actually um, a lot going on. You know, it's just you know, different pilot you know, programs here, there, and everywhere. You know, some of the studies are small, some are larger, some are having a big impact, some are having a small impact. So I thought, how could I do this? Because in, in a different way. So I talked with the editors at MIT Technology Review. They were very excited about it. Um, I also talked with the um, uh, the communication staff at the University of Illinois Hospital and also at the uh, company that made this um, technology. And it's not the wearable sensor because it's a pat- basically what happens is a person experiences COVID and after they leave the hospital, they're sent home with a biosensor patch that can capture heart rate, you know, respiratory rate, uh, um, stress, and other things. And when those, uh, any of those uh, biometrics or rather when any of those data is a certain critical level, 
then um, the nurses, you know, at the hospital are alerted, and they can um, call a doctor or then call an event nurse practitioner, and who will talk to the patient or rather the person who's recovering recover at home and say, you know, you know, are you stressed? Um, what's happening to you right now? Or, you know, in some cases, we think you need to go to the emergency room right now. And the story was very interesting because the company that designed the sensors um, actually had began um, designing sensors for jet engines. You know. So it's the same sort of technology that's used um, in jet engines, for example, or I guess for locomotives, you know, that can tell, you know, when an engine's overheating, you know, or when it needs, you know, more hydraulic fluid that, that's been applied to the human body. So I just thought that was a really fascinating story. Now, you published that in June. And what struck me is I feel like I'm someone who's really kept up on COVID everything uh, mm-hmm. over the last year and a half. And I, I don't know anything more about it uh, beyond what I read in your article. Is there anything oh. to update from that piece? Uh, yes. Um, it seems that the, 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 um, the pilot program is being expanded to several other hospitals. And um, there may be some news on, um, a wide, on an FDA clearance that would, that would allow this technology to be used in, um, you know, by many more people. That hasn't, that hasn't been uh, confirmed yet. So only um, just the short of it, but the short end of it is yes, the program has been expanded, expanded to more hospitals in the Chicago area. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that struck me too, reading that piece and reading one or two others that you wrote, mm-hmm. you're able to say a lot in a short amount of space. Like I never felt like yes. any of your pieces were particularly long, uh, right. and yet some of them are are a little uh, longer, but not terribly. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious how uh, how you managed to condense everything without uh, making sure, A, to get everything in, but right. not being too complicated in how you write. Right. Thank you. Um, yes, that, that is an acquired skill. Um, and I'm very flattered you've noticed that because uh, editors have commented on that as well. That sort of, and I feel that goes back to my television production, news production background. You know? yep. And I remember years ago, working on a, a news piece in television. And I'm sorry, before I worked in television, I worked for the Los Angeles Times and I worked for magazines. And I used to write these long, long, long pieces. You know? And I remember, when, of course, when I got in television, you don't have that luxury. You know? I was working on a piece, and it was too long. And I remember working with this um, managing editor, and he's went through it, and he just looked at it, this is just too long. He said, okay, what are the most important things you need to say? And think about that first. You know? And also think about the most, what you can take away from it you know, that, that won't hurt. You know? And he told me something that, um, I hadn't heard before, um, but he said, he, he's like, you know who Coco Chanel was? And I was like, um, this is like, you know, just, you know, the managing editor who's like this, you know, baseball fan, uh, and sports guy. And I said, yeah, Coco Chanel, the designer, right? He's like, right, right. She said, he said, she gave some really great advice once, uh, that I always tell my writers, and it was to women, and this was back in what, the 20s or 30s, you know, when walking out the door, look at the mirror and take one thing off, you know, one accessory that you're worth. And that's what I often tell their writers to do, um, to look at your piece again and take off another accessory. So what I have learned, and I believe um, I've gotten very skillful at telling these type of stories, you know, as you're describing, especially when reporting on science and technology, oftentimes it's not what you say, but it's what you don't say. That makes the story more compelling. Um, it's not too difficult to write about something in, you know, three or 4,000 words because you have, you know, the luxury of space and time. But if you have 1,500 words or 1,000 words, 
that's going to make it more challenging that you can convey the most information in an accessible format um, without um, you know, without the reader feeling he's lost at sea. So that's what I do try to do. Um, so you write a column for Undark, a magazine that explores how science uh, interacts with politics, economics, and culture. Your focus mm -hmm. is on the science of crime and the criminal justice system. We talked about fingerprints before. Uh, things right. like racial bias and facial recognition, gunfire right. detection technology, mm -hmm. lots of other things. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have a piece with him, those that you particularly write, uh, liked that you can share with us? There, we were talking about the fingerprint out, the fingerprint drug out, and that was an undark column that was reposted the Atlantic and more I think. Um, I there's several pieces I feel several columns in my undark column that um, I feel really strongly about, and, and I'm actually working on right now today, not right now as I'm talking to you, but as I right now this week I am um, writing a new column. Actually. I really like the first column I did for Undar on um, my first convictions column, which was on the epidemiology of gun violence in Chicago. I'm based in Chicago now, so there's something personal there as well. And there was new, um, this is new data that shows um, how much um, gun violence is, can be seen as a contagion, you know, in terms of like, like catching a cold, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's something I've always been fascinated about, just in terms of when people see violence or are exposed to violence, how um, how does that make them more likely to do it themselves? And there's actually a lot of research that shows that. So I really like that. Um, I like my piece on facial recognition, which I believe is my um, which I believe is my second column, or maybe my third, because it's actually the first um, I believe science news article um, that actually questioned. Not only, of course it's been it's been documented that there is a racial bias in facial recognition. But my question in the column was, why isn't anyone studying this? And at that time, which is 2017, I believe there had only been two studies, two studies documenting racial bias and facial recognition. So there's more awareness of it now, and there's probably more studies of it right now. But at that time, there wasn't much reporting or even less any reporting on the lack of research around it. So I feel very good um, because um, that art, that column from Dark was nominated for a science and society, science and society award from the National Science Writers Association. So I feel good about that. Um, of course, I like the fingerprint and then the fingerprint drawing office one. And um, I like the one I did more recently um, last year. I think two I did last year. One was on tasers, you know, on how the uh, number of taser incidents against teens and younger children has not been documented. And I like that because, you know, there's no documentation and it just sort of asks some questions. And the other piece I really liked, the other column I really liked, enjoyed, was the column um, around um, COVID disparities and jail cycling, the Cook Jail. There's the research that came out last year uh, that showed that, rather that, that Sort of strong, a strong association between um, jail cycling, you know, leaving the jail, mm -hmm. and corresponding um, COVID rates um, in neighborhoods. So the theory um, that the researchers were pushing um, was that they're catching COVID in Psycho County Jail and probably other jails as well. You know, they're only in there for a week or two and they return to their home communities and don't know that they have COVID. And that, that's um, how it brought into the community. And, so, and that caused a lot of discussion in that paper as well. Of course, Cook County Jail has changed a lot of its um, 
um, you know, methods and practices around that. But it's a very um, interesting theory, especially when you look at how, as we know, um, you know, incarceration rates are much, much, much higher in Black communities. And COVID-19 is just about. Mm -hmm. In your piece uh, you, that you just mentioned a second ago on the tasing of kids, you asked mm -hmm. the Chicago police for comment. They referred right. you to Chicago public schools and vice yeah. versa. That's an example of a bureaucratic challenge that I think reporters yeah. deal with across all different fields. I'm curious, what are some other challenges that you encounter in your reporting? Well, thanks for picking that up, by the way. I'm you know, I was like, oh, wow, he really is reading the article. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so um, interesting because I had a suspicion that the Chicago Police Department and Chicago Public Schools would not tell me the story, the full story, and that turned out to be true. But what's interesting in terms of my perspective, like being a science journalist, is oftentimes um, I found um, some police agencies just don't want to talk to me. You know? um, or some law enforcement agencies just don't want to talk to me. And I'll talk to other journalists um, and other reporters, and that's probably because of the general interest news reporters. And if they read my work, they can see that I'm probably going to ask a lot of questions that they don't want to answer. So that happens. Sure, please also come to think of it. Um, yeah, I reached out to Chicago Police on like maybe three stories, you know, and then no one's ever contacted, has, has returned a call. So that's not surprising. You know? So, um, this is something I, I, I just want to grapple with, but it is what it is. Gotcha. Um, you you had the experience being a fellow at MIT. What did you yes. get out of that experience? Um, yes, um, that was actually one of the um, highlights of my, of my um, journalism career so far, uh, being a night science journalism fellow at MIT. Um, I uh, really, really enjoyed the experience, and I got a lot out of it. Um, I told myself going in, I wanted to take some classes and learn what I could about art. I mean, this is a, this is a one-year opportunity, so I wanted to maximize it. So I really wanted to learn as much as I could about AI. Uh, not just, just in terms of coding, but just also just in terms of ethics, you know, and, and, and how it impacts our daily lives. So I took several courses there at MIT, and it was really, really uh, it's really happy being there. It was just a, it was a special time. Met some really great people. Deborah Blum, who was the leader of the program, uh, who was the director of the program, is a fantastic science journalist. She was a fantastic Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. So she's a great mentor. And Tom Zeller, uh, who was there as well, and also as the editor in chief of Undark, was just a great mentor there as well. There's some really strong people who've been through the program. Yeah, MIT is uh, fantastic. I have been there uh, on a couple of occasions for sporting events. Uh, fantastic place to visit, certainly. Uh, in our in our last episode, Calandra Smith, who's a theater and culture writer, said that there are fewer than two dozen black theater critics across mm. the United States. And I saw a call on Twitter about a year ago for black scientists, black science writers, to identify themselves. Right. A few did, but it was not a long list. Right. It's not a long list. Um, Yes, um, yeah. Um, then also it was interesting. Um, as far as I know, well, my my knowledge is not perfect, of course, but I will say that um, there are fewer black science journalists. Um, but I'm not surprised because um, there's fewer, you know, African American journalists across the spectrum. And, 
And, and I'm saying African-American for a particular reason, because, or Black for a particular reason, because too often times, um, journalists group Blacks and with other non-whites and use the term POC, um, person of color. But there's a very big difference, you know? And I've, had to, and I've talked about this before. I don't particularly like being described as a person of color. I mean, I'm African-American or I'm Black. But the difference is, and, and the problem, and maybe you can see it from my perspective, is saying person of color assumes that we all have the same experiences. And I would say that we do not. A black man or a black woman, an African-American man or woman, reporting on artificial intelligence or you know, neuroscience is not going to be seen the same as a, I don't know, an Asian doing it or a white person. You know? Are you willing to share any, any I guess, situations you had i mentioned challenges that you've had to encounter in your reporting have there, are there any that you're willing to acknowledge uh with regards to that um not necessarily yeah okay. I mean, there's there's a few things that happen i mean a few a few um you know a few eyebrows are raised i mean for instance was when you said earlier when you're describing about just the um diversity of topics i cover um from ai to you know the science of violence or something like that and um, you were just acknowledging that as journalists to journalists, but yep. I do know for a fact that some some journalists or some editors might think, why is he covering AI? Hmm, does he, what does he know about it? You know, um, that sort of thing. Um, there's a professor named Mark Neal who is at Duke University. Mark Neal um, wrote a book, I think about 10 years ago, called Looking for Leroy. And the Leroy was the character in Fame. Do you remember the television show and the movie Fame? Fame? I do, absolutely. Right. Remember the so Leroy with the cornrows? Yep. Right, right. So, um, and this is a really interesting book just in terms of um, how black men are viewed in different spaces in the world. And he had a really good example. And I always bring this up because when I asked him about it, in terms of a black man with a basketball versus a, viol- a violin. And he says, if, if, if the average person sees a black teenager or a black young man with a basketball walking down the street, they'll instantly think he's a basketball player because that is a comfortable image for them. That's something they've seen many, many times before. You know? But if it's a young black boy or a teenager black boy um, walking with a violin case, then people will look into it and think, hmm, how did he get that violin? Does he really know how to play it? How did he learn to play it? Is it any good? So I'll say um, I've seen this many times over the years, um, having worked in print, having worked in television, um, now have working in print and digital, working in science news per se, um, that oftentimes, and you probably know this as well, um, black journalists and black reporters are trapped in certain um, in certain uh, fields or certain niches. You know? mm-hmm. Years ago, right? Years ago in newspapers, many of the black reporters were always put into on the metro desk. You know. Or sports, right? Black yep. reporters are always sports, right? But if you see them covering you know, investigations, I mean, it would be rare to see a black person you know, in the eye unit, and it still is today. You know? I mean, of course, there's many changes now, and many changes today. But um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, we all have war stories. I don't have any particularly bad ones working in science news. I would say that working in science news actually has been liberating in many ways because. I feel my talents have been appreciated um, for the most part because I feel I have a lot to offer. Oh, 
here we go. You asked for a story. Okay, so I'll give a story. And this just came up just recently. So there's a certain there's a certain um, journalist who was interviewing me, who wanted to interview me for a piece that they were doing. And so um, I thought it'd be great. So they, um, you know, they said some time in the interview. And we set the interview time and we did an interview. And then later they called me back and they said, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. You, you know. Thank you for talking with me, but I don't know you should comment, Jim. I mean, oh, did you change your anger or something like that? And she said, no, um, just to be honest, I'm just, I, I think I booked too many people. You know, I said, okay, fine, that happens to me all the time. Anyway, when the article came out, uh, I, I just looked over the several people who were quoted, and I got the distinct impression that, um, I just got the distinct impression that one of them, one of the persons quoting the article, perhaps want to control who else was quoted, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Um, so do you have any uh, any work coming out soon that is uh, of particular interest? I know you, you're working on a chapter for a textbook. Um, I'm curious what else you're working on. Right. So I am working on a chapter in a textbook. Uh, that is the... Um, the uh, mm, the working title, I believe, is the MIT Night Science Journalism um, Tactical. I'm sorry, the MIT the tactical the tactical guide to science journalism. Um, it's being uh, produced more or less by MIT Science Journalism, and it's being published by Oxford University Press. I believe that I believe the pub date is fall 2022, so later this year, but I could be mistaken. So my uh, my chapter, and I've contributed several books before, but this is my first time in a textbook. My chapter is in the section on beat reporting, you know, how to craft your beat. So in my, uh, in my chapter, I do, um, I give a lot of examples on how I crafted a beat in the science, reporting on the science of crime. Excellent. Uh, when that comes up, certainly be sure to let us know. What are mm-hmm. the challenges of being uh, freelance and what advice do you have for someone choosing to be freelance? Hmm. Yeah. The, the challenges, of course, always are getting paid or having sustainable income. And, um, and those are, I, I think, not going anywhere anytime soon, especially with the economy now that um, more of us who have staff jobs don't have them anymore. So we're freelancing. And it's not that it's necessarily a quality issue just in terms, but it's mostly, I feel, just in terms of, you know, the, the economics of the business are different now. So. And also there's a price point at a certain point that, probably just becomes untenable for some businesses to some, you know, some media outlets to hire um, better writers, reporters who have, you know, who have tenure and rather, you know, who have broad experience because they will want more money. So the, what I would, what I would suggest for anyone wanting to become a freelance writer is to think very carefully about it. You know, is this something, um, is this something that you need to do and how should you do it? Uh, I don't recommend anyone quit their job, you know, right away. Just quit their job and say they're, they're going to write, you know, unless they have a trust fund or something like that. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a full-time job and writing occasionally on the side, you know. Now, that will mean oftentimes that um, some uh, magazines won't want to hire you, you know, or some publications won't want to hire you. 
So I think it's a balancing act because from some of the science magazines say that you have to be a full-time science writer, you know, or no good. You know? And I can understand that um, to a certain degree, but I would caution everyone first, you know, why do you want to do this? And do you need to do this? Yeah. Um, I also would suggest that anyone wanting to be a writer in general or freelance writer in particular is trying to um trying to build your portfolio so that you specialize in something so that people know um, that you're going to do something really, really well and try to pick something that's um, underappreciated or underreported. Um, most of the pieces that I report, um, I think you'd say you've probably never seen anywhere else. And I try yep. to keep it that way. I try to keep it that way and make myself a unique, that's my unique selling point. So I think having a USP in business um, is always, always a great thing. Yep, I certainly uh, I said that multiple times as I was looking at your stuff. Uh, boy, I haven't seen this before. Um, all right, last question: Is there a person or organization, journalism related, that you're not affiliated with that you'd like to salute for their good work? Um, yes, no, um, I'm you know, I'm not right now. I'm actually not a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. I was before, um, but I really, uh, really, and that's nothing. Um, um, that's nothing. Um, that's just a, that. That was just me forgetting to, you know, to sign up again. I actually do it probably, you know, this week. But I do want to give them a shout out because they're doing great work. Um, they're um, creating pipelines for young talent in newsrooms, which we desperately need. So I really, really appreciate that. Rod McCollum, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, best of luck thank in your work. Thank you so much, Mark Diamond. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.